First reading is Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 to 15. A son promised to Abraham and Sarah. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I find favour with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. And he took curds and milk and the calf that he prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. He said to him, Where's your wife Sarah? And he said, There, in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah shall have a son. Sarah and Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah are old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I've grown old and my husband is old, shall I be fruitful? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did laugh Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Was anything too wonderful the Lord? At the set time I'll return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh. She was afraid. He said, Yes, you did laugh. Amen. The second reading is Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 to 7. The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to his son, whom Sarah bore him. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abram was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Who would ever have said to Abram that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I bore him a son in his old age. Amen. So when myself and my wife started talking about having a child, I knew it was going to be quite difficult. I was quite old at the time, at 38. And, I, and when we found out, we thought it was going to be quite difficult for Helen, despite, and that's even without the fact we were two women. But when I was 39, we had little Zara. It's been a whirlwind and bat up battle uphill since. Now, imagine being 90. I might have said to God, on your Nelly. Seriously, it's quite ludicrous. But, and this is exactly what happened to Sarah and Abraham. No wonder she laughed. So today we're going to have a little look at God's promise, why it was given in particular, the cause and actually why it's so central to not just what it means to be Christian, but also Jewish and Muslim. Please pray with me. 
loving God, I pray that my heart has been open to your words. And I pray that the words that I speak are a delight to you and to others. Amen. So the two texts we read this morning narrate the promise in Genesis 18 and then the subsequent birth of a son to Sarah and Abraham in Genesis 21. And prior to this, the story of Abram, the father of the Jewish people, begins with God's command to go away from his country, to leave the safety of Ur, and to go to a new land, which is in Genesis 12, 1. And he left with his wife Sarai and his, and his nephew Lot. He's now become a nomad. He's to wonder, as this is literally the only way to survive as a newcomer in this region. All the best land had been taken, and now he had to find pastures to rear his sheep every time, constantly changing. However, when Abraham, or Abraham sorry, arrived in Canaan, his first act is to set up an altar to God. Again, Genesis 12. And during this time of transition, God eventually makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 where God promises numerous descendants to be the father of a great nation. God says that he will have enough descendants as numerous as stars to cover the sky. This promise could easily have been fulfilled by Sarai, who was taken by Pharaoh into his harem in Genesis 12, or by Lot, who was settled in Sodom. Or it could have been fulfilled by Hagar, a slave-born from Abram's house, who he takes as a concubine, with a son being born called Ishmael. But, Genesis 17, God confirms his covenant that Abram and Sarai, that indeed they will become the matriarchs and the patriarchs of this nation, and changes their names to Sarah, as what we know today, Sarah and Abraham. So let me get to our part of the story. The fulfillment of promise by God and Abraham and Sarah with the birth of Isaac. And it's interesting to see that this part of the story of Genesis shows God's promise in very specific terms. Within a year, they'll be holding a baby. It also shows Sarah's disbelief in God's promise. But we can notice that this specific promise comes after a very sacred duty for people. Hospitality. Hospitality is actually the word, I apologize if I get it wrong, philozenos, philo meaning love, and xenos meaning stranger. So philozenos simply means the lover of strangers. Abraham is seen by Midrash, which is Jewish interpretation, as the perfect example as someone who is hospita hospitable. In specific detail in this text outlines his hospitality. It is incredibly unique in the stories that we read in Genesis about how specific it was. It says, he stood at the doorway he was looking out for wayfarers in the heat of the day. 
He stood looking out and then, not knowing who these wanderers were, offered them generosity. And that generosity was underlined by physical activity that he performed. The amount of huge amount of diversity of cuisine that he offered the strangers was quite unique. Abraham offered his guests water to wash their feet after a very long time in the desert. He was aware of the, his guests' needs and of tiredness. He told them to eat a little bread before they go on their way. But then he goes rushing around his house looking for things to give them. They didn't ask for this. Why? Why did he bother? He'd already given them rest. He'd already given them food. He'd already given them support. But how many times have we stayed at people's houses or gone over somebody's house and said, they said, what would you like to eat, drink? What would you like? And you go, oh, just drink your water or a cup of tea. But actually, we're quite ravenous. But we're too polite to ask. Abraham preempted this issue. He thought about it in advance. He knew without them asking that he might, they might want more. So I suggest Abraham already knew this. And this is quite remarkable. He shows remarkable understanding of humanity. He, to spare the embarrassment of his guests, he simply preempted their needs without their need for asking. Not only did Abraham offer hospitality, he went above and beyond. He also was sensitive to their needs and thoughts. Even that being, he, he used his own initial intuition. It is Abraham's example that has become a key element of Judaic He showed this hospitality, by, by showing this hospitality, it's now become a mitzvah in Jewish society, uh, uh, understanding, a holy command. When, uh, when this holy command says, when no when, when those of strangers who are hungry or need a place to relax, it becomes a legal obligation to consider, to, to support them. Some rabbis also consider Literally, uh, I can't, again, I'm going to get it wrong. Literally, the bringing in of strangers is to be part of the Gemalot Hasidim, the giving of loving kindness. And the Talmud even goes further and says, welcoming guests is greater than welcoming the divine presence. Let me just repeat that, because that's quite huge. It says that great, it is greater Welcoming guests is greater than welcoming the divine presence. Because when Abraham wanted to offer hospitality to the three wayfarers, he also interpreted the vision of God here. He didn't, they didn't need to be asked, and he interpreted what God wanted him to do for them. Now, Abraham's complete devotion to God and his willingness to welcome the guests brings in fruition of the promise that was once given to Sarah and Abraham, a child, descendants. This time though, instead of a promise being open-ended, it is very specific this time around. He said, within a year you will hold a baby. The guests now are not able to, not, not are able to, 
These guests are now able to, not able to see Sarah. They didn't know where she was. Asked, they asked her where she was. So they knew that she was there. They also knew that she had laughed. Who wouldn't? At 90, who wouldn't laugh? I mean it, come on. It also shows us the roles are now reversed. The guests are now given of hospitality. The guests are given news to Sarah. And this is all because of their own generous giving in the first place. Sarah's laughter, uh, there, however, Sarah's laughter at this news is picked up as hostile to God. But in doing so, I disagree. I think she's naming, she's naming her problem. She's naming what issues she has. She is 90, she has gone through um, menopause. It's not gonna happen for her. And she's saying, you're taking the mick out of me. But, and she's doing this privately, but still airing her grievance. And while God saw it as offensive in the end, her birth also is a divine, brings in a sense of laughter as a divine gift. So although her laughter was a sense of uh, going against God, at the end it became a gift from God. So maybe the idea of naming our problems is a good thing. Maybe saying to God, what you're playing at is a good thing. So, Brueggemann, I know you heard about Brueggemann last week from Simon. He's actually one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, so I have to bring him up too. He said that Abraham went simply beyond a hospitality to a stranger. He argues that he sat on the edge of the tent to look for the stranger. He was in that thin space on the edge between the insider and the outsider. He was the idea of bringing the insider in to support the outside, to, to bring the outside in to help them. He knew how difficult being on the outside in that hot desert was. So being on that thin space, allowing that person, the stranger, to get some support, get the coolness from the water, from the fresh and washing of the feet, was an important part for him. So. Abraham was actually looking out for the stranger. He was physically looking for them. He was actually showing what we call radical hospitality. And just like Abraham, Christ also focuses teaching on this concept of hospitality to a stranger and this radical hospitality. But I'm not gonna go into detail, but more importantly, if you look at Luke 10, 25 to 37, this is reinforcing this Jewish midrash here of radical hospitality. The parable of the Good Samaritan clearly shows this. <clears throat> Just to remind you, this is the idea that when a man was in desperate need, he was beaten up, he was hurt. When he was robbed and beaten and on that road from Jericho to Jerusalem, the person who stopped to see him was the foe, was the enemy of the Jewish nation. It was the Samaritan. So, in that case, the Samaritans then took pity on him. They bandaged him, cleaned his wounds. He, took, he then put them back on his donkey, took him to the innkeeper whom he paid to look after him. The same, the parable ends with Jesus giving the commandment to go and do the same as the Samaritan. So this is showing Christ's radical love and hospitality towards the stranger. Now, despite someone being your foe, you must provide for them. 
provide for them and go and be, go and above for them. Because the story also tells us the Samaritan didn't just support the injured man. He didn't just support him. He gave the innkeeper money to look after him. He helped him further than what's needed originally. So, just like Christ tells us to go beyond the obvious, to provide the hospitality to the foe, who is our neighbor? We are also reminded this in this patriarchal text. As the text celebrates Abraham's generous hospitality to his guests, and we celebrate Sarah's courageous laughter, it is necessary to understand that actually it's still a problem as well. Because there was a lack of hospitality shown to, to Hagar and Ishmael. So, these celebrated figures acted oppressively and out of fear towards two individual marginalized people. The God who agreed with Sarah and Abram cast out Hagar and Ishmael away. But this is that narrative, as Antalya Brenner, one of my favorite feminist scholars, said. This is this idea, this classic myth of giving birth to a hero. Isaac became the hero. But both live, but she says, both Sarah and Hagar lived under the protection of Abraham. Abraham had a duty of care to support Ishmael and Hagar as much as Isaac and Sarah. But what I find is that they provide a, a, a reminder to us that despite our humanity of thing to say, if somebody's a problem, you'll throw them away. God still has a promise to them. Because if you are reminded that in Genesis 25, sorry, in Genesis, that Ishmael and Hagar are also promised by God. And this serves us as a reminder, I think, that actually, and I think it, that's what it does in the text. It shows us that the other Ishmael and, and, and Hagar, they're an important reminder that Israel must always be open to the other since the other is also a brother. And in the end, in Genesis 25, 9, both brothers, the insider and the outsider, are together in the cave when they buried their father. So despite being discarded, they're included into the narrative. So what does this mean for us? I think that means threefold. One, I think it means to preempt hospitality. How many times do we have to wait to be asked for something? Where there's a cup of tea, support for prayer, a meal. How many times do we wait for people to ask it from us? Abraham has shown us the example of what it means to be host here. Ish. <laughs> we should not wait to be asked. This is ignoring the needs of the guest, of the stranger. If we waited to be asked, then it puts a burden on them. And the act of hospitality is lost. It isn't enough to provide someone with their specific needs and their comfort. We need to seek out it out beforehand, before they provide it. One reason why my, my, uh, my fellow countryman, Anira Nybevan, his spirit of hospitality from a humanist is incredible. He saw the need in people before they even asked for it. He fought so hard for people in order to get the most important legislation in this country through Parliament. And this type of hospitality, NHS, 
And he said, illness is neither an indulgence for which people have to pay, nor an offence which they should be penalised, but a misfortune, uh, co the cost which they should be shared by the community. The NHS and the welfare state preempts hospitality. Instead of having to ask for, help, ask for help from others, our taxes are used to support radical hospitality. Our money through taxes is given to the perfect stranger, someone who needs it at their most need, someone we do not know. It's also why I'm fundamentally against the destruction of the welfare state. It should not be rolled back. When someone needs it to support them, get help, whether it's due to unemployment or sickness, radical hospitality shouldn't be saying no. Nor should be taking money back because somebody couldn't arbitrarily meet it, go to a meeting. This is not hospitality. That is cruelty. This, that isn't Abraham's hospitality, a preemptive need. Instead, it's saying to the stranger, you can have bread, but I'm not going to make you a feast. Secondly, to the stranger. Hagar here shows us that hospitality often means the stranger, uh, also what it means to the stranger and those who are despised. Both Hagar and Christ's message shows us we need to think very carefully about who our stranger are, is. Today in our climate of fear, we, I know you know from your record here, sometimes the stranger of fear from the media and government seems to be the migrant and the refugee. Someone from another country who can't, who, those who cross borders, they are despised by so many people. Many wouldn't call it um, that. They would say it was looking after our own, our own needs. But what Hagar shows us is that the stranger, stranger or migrant should be our own also. The stranger or the migrant could be our brother or sister. So by refusing entry, refusing support for refugees, we're not showing hospitality to our siblings. As a country, and many Christians within this country also support this. They profess to love God, yet show inhospitality towards the stranger. That could be sending them to Rwanda. It could be gone on the barge, sending people to detention. This is not what Christ meant by hospitality. And finally, from the heart. Um, I don't know if some of you here might know this book, but John Pavoltz wrote a book called The Bigger Table. I know it's been a big part of many people who are including, having inclusion at the heart of their churches. It talks about radical hospitality, total authenticity, and true diversity in a gender-free community. He argues hospitality is first about who you are, not what you are. I've gone to people's houses and eaten wonderful food, but often felt a lack of warmth or genuineness in my post. A person who is truly hospital, hospitable sorry, is hospitable from the heart. And recognises that actually there's many ways to express this hospitality and food does not have to be part of it. It can help but it doesn't have to be a part of it. We see Jesus' radical um, hospitality in the Last Supper, expressed to us through the Last Supper. We see it through Jesus then washing of the feet of his people. But remembering the feet that he also washed was the washing of the feet of somebody who was his foe. And the person he fed at that table was his foe. 
Judas. So radical hospitality is inclusive, irregardless of who's there. There's no restrictions on whose hospitality is lavished at. And this is the hard bit, I think. It's definitely my hardest bit. Radical hospitality is directed to those who are offended by, angered by, and disagree with everybody, with me. It is, means that whatever we are, whoever we are, doesn't matter about our sex, racial uh, orientation, gender, religion, political affiliation, that's my hard bit. <laughs> it needs to be removed because this doesn't mean about building a bigger table. Because Jesus did that, he built a bigger table. Hospitality of Jesus seemed to show no bounds. It was extravagant, it was inclusive. No one was beyond reach of it. And for me, this includes the people who hate me. This is the people who I see as having a problem with my existence. This includes the people who um, are all the very right wings of society who disagree with my politics. This is hard for me because it includes them. And I've always shut out them, but radical hospitality means listening, asking questions, disagreeing, but asking questions. Hospitality is about showing God to them. So before I leave you with this today, I'll ask you a couple of questions. And I've had to think of some questions when I'm reading, writing this today. What stops you from giving radical hospitality? What fears do you have about this radical hospitality? What challenges does it possess for you? And what conditions do you place on what hospitality do you give? What does it look like, this radical hospitality, both here and here? Let's all pray. Lord God, this morning we bow our hearts before you and we come to you and we say thank you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your kindness, for your patience for your mercy. Thank you for this beautiful world, all the things we see, the wonderful nature, the pleasures of good things to eat. Thank you for our families, for our friends, We acknowledge that all we have comes from you. As we look around this world, we see it as a world full of disasters and trouble. We pray for Morocco, devastated by an earthquake, for Libya, where there have been terrible floods this week. We pray for those involved in in rescuing people. We pray for those involved in restoring and rebuilding villages and communities. 
We pray for those who mourn, who mourn the loss of loved ones, who mourn the loss of homes. We realise that when these disasters occur, some of them can be man-made and exacerbated by our actions. We acknowledge that even when disasters are natural, such as earthquakes, still the results for those who are poor are always much worse. And we pray for a fairer world. We pray that you would show those of us in the richer parts of the world how we should live, that we would not be greedy, that we would not consume without thinking of the consequences, that we would have hands out to share with those who do not have what we have, that we would share our resources, our expertise. Show each of us in our own lives, in our, in, in our own dealings, how we can do this. Lord God, we pray for the church this morning. We pray that this church might continue to be a witness of God's love for all people. We pray that you might give us a boldness to provoke faith in the city of London. An openness to have conversations with those around us. That we might be hospitable in our dealings with those we come across. And that all might truly be felt welcome here. And so, Lord God, we pray for ourselves. We pray that you would be with us in our daily lives, in our work, in our dealings with our families, our friends and our colleagues, in all our relationships and dealings with other people. Maybe, may we be a people who, who deal with integrity and with love. We pray that you might meet us in our fears in our desires, in our worries, in our hopes, in our guilt, and in our frustrations, and in our grief. Each of us bears burdens and concerns that may not even be known by others here but they are known by you, our God. And we are confident that we come to a loving and kind God. We take a moment to name our deepest concerns and fears before you now in silencing our hearts. You are the God who hears our prayers. You are a God of mercy and compassion. Hear our prayers this morning, the spoken, the unspoken. Stir us up to love you and to love each other all the more. And help us to praise your name sincerely with our lips and with our hearts. Bless us, we pray. For we bring these prayers in the name of our loving Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. A blessing. Now, as our worship comes to an end, Lord, 
let us resume our service to the world. And as we leave, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. <laughs>